presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Brought to you by Brilliance Audio. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and of several anthologies such as Wastelands and The Living Dead. My latest book is The Living Dead 2, and my next book, uh, The Way of the Wizard, comes out in November. And I'm David Barkertley. Uh, my short stories appear in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy and Weird Tales, and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. I also wrote stories for John's new anthologies, The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing acclaimed new author Catherine M. Valenti. It's spelled V-A-L-E-N-T-E, but it's pronounced Valenti, not Valente. I understand maybe one or two people might have gotten that wrong. So just a few things before we get on to our interview. Uh, first of all, we really want to thank our pod turn, Christy Yant, who compiled the show notes for our first 21 episodes. Christy is also a writer. Her story, The Magician and the Maid and Other Stories, will be coming out in John's anthology, The Way of the Wizard. And you can find out more about her at inkhaven.net. And our new pod turn is Aidan Moher. And you can find out more about him at his blog, A Dribble of Ink. So thanks to those guys. Uh, we also have a new website at geeksguideshow.com. We figured that with 21 episodes on Tor.com and now new episodes coming out on io9, that we should have a master list of all the episodes that's easy to find. So check that out. There's also a donation button over there. So if you want to make a donation, we would really appreciate it. Um, we've already received donations from Steve Sisney and James Yingst. So thank you to them very much. Um, we also have an iTunes feed for our io9 episodes, so if you go to iTunes and search for Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, that'll come right up. That feed has our fancy new Geek's Guide logo, and of course it would be a big help if people could rate the podcast there and write reviews. Positive ones, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you write bad reviews, that doesn't help at all. Uh, and another way you can help would be if you go to io9 and write comments on the posts for each episode. You know, one problem we've discovered with doing a podcast is that sites like io9 want content that's going to drive traffic to their site. And if everybody just goes and listens to the podcast on iTunes, it's not doing the site a lot of good. And especially since audio is so much more work to produce than blog posts. And, you know, we do, we do mention io9 in our intro. So I would imagine that a lot of people hear that. Uh, and so then they go and type io9 into their browser and visit it. But then, you know, the site has no way of knowing that those people are going because of the podcast. So anyway, so if you want the show to continue, it would really help us out if after you finish listening, you would uh, head over to io9 and comment on the episode. And if you go to our site at geeksguideshow.com, we have links for each episode to the io9 page uh, where you can post those comments. Okay, and so as we mentioned, uh, today we'll be interviewing Catherine M. Valenti. So Cat Valenti is the author of over a dozen works of fiction and poetry, including Palimpsest, The Orphan's Tale series, and the crowdfunded phenomenon, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. She is the winner of the Tiptree Award, the Andre Norton Award, and she was also a finalist for the World Fantasy Award in 2007 and 2009, and the Hugo Award in 2010. And we'll get to the interview right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, the Hugo Award finalist, Palimpsest, by Catherine M. Valenti. Between life and death, dreaming and waking, at the train stop beyond the end of the world is the city of Palimpsest. To get there is a miracle, a mystery, a gift and a curse. A voyage permitted only to those who've always believed there's another world than the one that meets the eye. Those fated to make the passage are marked forever by a map of that wondrous city tattooed on their flesh after a single orgasmic night. 
To this kingdom of ghost trains, lion priests, living kanji, and cream-filled canals come four travelers. Oleg, a New York locksmith. The beekeeper, November. Ludovico, a binder of rare books. And a young Japanese woman named Sei. They've each lost something important. A wife, a lover, a sister, a direction in life. And what they will find in Palimpsest is more than they could ever imagine. An unabridged recording of Palimpsest by Catherine M. Valenti, narrated by N.A. Vigesa. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. All right, so let's get Kat on the phone. Hello? Hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us on the show. No problem. Uh, so first of all, uh, what are some of the books you read when you were younger that inspired you to want to become a writer yourself? So th- uh, the one that I always want to shout out is Dolaire's Big Book of Greek Myths, which is this weird book that a bunch of women and uh, men my age read, but nobody ever talks about anymore because the illustrations are really embarrassing. But it was my first real contact with Greek mythology. It's bright 70s orange and has horrifically bizarre illustrations all the way through it. But I loved it. And the first, um, the first like, non-picture book I ever read was The NeverEnding Story, which nobody believed I read because I was five. And it's really long. So I had to like give a book report in front of my family to prove that I'd read the book. I mean, I could go on forever and ever. Seaward by Susan Cooper was a huge influence on me. Um, Not the um, Arthurian book she wrote, but but this other really weird book about Selkies. Um, And and every book of fairy tales my mother ever bought me. My mom is a political science professor, and the books that she had for me were fairy tales from around the world, you know, any collection of fairy tales she could find. And then she would have me read French surrealist theater. Uh, She read me Plato's Republic as a bedtime story. You know, it would just, uh, she made me read Waiting for Godot out loud to her when I was nine. And then I was in, in classics for such a long time. I was obsessed with classics that I read all dead people for years and years and years. I read science fiction and fantasy between the ages of like five and, and 18. And then I dropped into the hole of only reading dead people who wrote in non-English languages. So you coined the term myth punk to describe your work. Uh, what makes something myth punk and who are some other myth punk authors that people should check out? So the hilarious thing about that word was that it was a joke. Uh, it was just a tossed-off live journal entry. If you Google it and find the original live journal entry, it's not a manifesto by any stretch of the imagination. It's a recounting of stupid jokes I was making over the breakfast table. And people really ran with it, I think, because there was no other word to really describe what I was talking about. The word myth-punk, myth-punk, I can't even say my own word, comes from my understanding of the word steampunk, which is apparently not anything like what the word steampunk actually means. I discovered that a couple of years ago because I thought steampunk was like cyberpunk. It was about anxiety towards technology, only the technology was steam rather than uh, computer technology. So that's not actually what steampunk ends up being about very much at all uh, these days. And mythpunk, to my mind, has to do with engaging with mythology and folklore with that level of anxiety, um, not necessarily trusting the original sources, but make, making it our own in a really... Um, I don't want to say angry way, but there, there. I think that anything that has the word punk in it has to have some level of anger. If if you were satisfied with the way these stories were being told, if they spoke to you in any kind of meaningful way, then there would be no reason to retell them. As far as other myth punk writers, I mean, I definitely think that Theodore Goss, uh, I've always called her out as, as one of them, whether she likes it or not, I suppose. 
Um, Sean and McGuire is somebody I really think is, is doing some amazing work in that arena these days. Really, anybody who is dealing with folklore and mythology in a way that isn't, oh, look at the pretty fairies. And that's a really easy thing to say, right? Like, we all want to say we're hardcore and our, our fairy tale retellings are the ones that are, are super badass in every way. But it's actually not true. Um, since I've been editing Apex Magazine, I've learned all about how bad uh, fairy tale retellings can be and how plain even good ones can be. And if you're going to call it myth punk, I feel like it has to be something more. I'm not wedded to the term myth punk. If somebody else comes up with something better, I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Uh, I'm, I'm amused at how far it's gone from a little live journal entry. Your novel Palimpsest, which is about a sexually transmitted city, was a finalist for the Hugo Award this year. Uh, how'd you come up with that concept and how exactly does a sexually transmitted city work? Uh, so I came up with the concept on the highway between Missouri and Ohio, uh, which is where all great ideas come <laughs> from, sitting on the highway for hours and hours. And I, I had to do a story for Ekaterina Sidia's Paper Cities anthology, and I had just finished In the Cities of Coin and Spice, which is the second book in the Orphan's Tales series. And, and by that title, you might think that there's a couple of fantasy cities in that. And I was so done with cities. I, I didn't feel like I had another city in me at that point. And so I just started talking about, you know, what, what the essence of cities are, you know, what, what, it, what is it sort of psychically about a city that makes it something that people are so obsessed with, uh, especially having moved to the East Coast. The way people are about New York is such a strange thing to me. Um, people were never as committed and as, as sort of strident about living in L.A. as they are in New York. I mean, they, they love the industry in L.A. and everything, but it's not the same feeling. And I wanted to think about what that feeling really was. And, and the idea of cities on skin and, and writing on skin is, is one that I've been obsessed with for a long time. Uh, and it all just sort of came together. And the minute I thought of, of a virus, you know, being a child of the 80s, autom automatically the idea of a sexually transmitted virus uh, came bubbling up into my head. The way a sexually transmitted city works is that you can't go to Palimpsest without sleeping with somebody who's already been there. You sleep with somebody who uh, has been to Palimpsest. They, the people who have been there have a, a mark on them. It looks like a tattoo. It looks like a little bit of a map. It's left ambiguous in the book how much the, those marks really are part of the city, physically part of the city, or just a kind of branding. And uh, the night that you sleep with them, you dream about going to Palimpsest and in, in some sense are actually there and wake up with the same mark on you. That's how that works. Okay, so uh, your recent novel, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairylands in a Ship of Her Own Making, was the first online crowdsourced book to win a major literary award before traditional publication. Uh, first of all, what's the book about? Well, so it started out as a book within a book in Palimpsest, um, which is, you know, just the first of the really weird things about the way this, this book came into the world. And it's about a little girl named September who is spirited away from Nebraska by uh, a sort of trickster character called the Green Wind and uh, arrives in Fairyland and, and in the fashion of most girls who arrive in portal fantasy countries, uh, ends up tangling with the, the dark ruler, the Marquess. Okay, and uh, so could you explain what crowdsourcing is and why you decided to release the book that way? So crowdsourcing is, uh, there's actually a lot of different ways to crowdsource something, but it's basically a micro donations model rather than uh, publishing something through a traditional publisher or uh, an album through a traditional record label. Uh, it's presented online and sometimes it's for free and donations are voluntary as it was with me. Sometimes it's uh, when you hit a certain number of donations, the new chapter goes up. There's a whole lot of different models. The one I chose seemed to be, uh, given what I was doing, the best way to go, because what had happened last year was my husband had been laid off for about nine months, and uh, our savings were done. 
and I, I didn't really know what to do. You know, going back to school takes a long time to pay the rent. You know, it's a couple of years before you can pay the rent going back to school and, and jobs are not easy to come by in Maine. And so, um, in order to sort of get us to the next, the next month in this, in this house, I started putting up chapter by chapter, uh, this book that people had been asking about in Palimpsest. They kept asking if it was a real book. And I kept saying, no, it's, it's not a real book. Look up the Dewey Decimal number. It's not real. Uh, and they asked if I was ever going to write it. And I said, of course, I'm not, I'm not going to write it. You don't, you don't really write the books within the books unless you're Peter Straub. And so I, it seemed to be something people really wanted. And the more I wrote it, the more I just completely fell in love with it. And, and everyone else seemed to as well. It, it really was linked around a lot and discussed. And I just had a button up that said, donate what you feel the book is worth. And people really responded to that. I, there was a lot of uh, fan art and a lot of discussion of the book. There was a fan community almost immediately. It's a lot of love surrounding that book. Uh, so you're known for having a pretty dedicated online following, which no doubt, uh, you know, helped with that crowdsourcing effort. Um, what kind of interactions have you had with your fans uh, and your readers over the years? Oh, well, I mean, I, so yeah, I, I have this blog and, and the blog is kind of how everything in my life comes into my life. I, I met my husband through that blog. I, I got my first book deal, you know, through need, meeting uh, Nick Mamadas through LiveJournal. And, you know, the jam I had on my bread this morning was sent to me by a friend on LJ. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I really encourage people to come and introduce themselves to me, and I make some of my best friends that way. I, I think I might only have one friend. No, no, I have three friends I didn't actually meet through the blog. But most everything in my world comes through that portal these days, and I don't really differentiate too much between fans and friends. I, It's all just kind of one big family. And I recognize that that's because I haven't had any bad experiences with that. I'm sure if anything... Uh, untoward had happened over the years i wouldn't feel the same way but my fans have been wonderful and they are they are truly a family all the way around the world and uh, i love them to pieces and uh, i sort of look at my blog as just a place we all come to hang out every day uh, so you, you've done several events with a uh, singer songwriter sj tucker um how'd you two meet and and what kind of events have you done together uh, we met in 2006 at Lunacon. I had already been a fan of hers for quite some time, but I'd been living in Japan, so I wasn't in a position to meet anyone, really. We were just sisters immediately. We spent the day hanging out together, and she came through Cleveland on her concert. She tours 24-7, so, you know, on her concert tour means just on her life. Uh, but she came through Cleveland to play, and we were sitting around in the living room, and the idea of a tie-in album sort of came up. And then the next morning, she came running up to me with this glowing look on her face and played me the first song that ended up being the orphan's tales album and she's amazing she's an amazing person an amazing artist um and what we do together has grown over the years from very small events when the orphan's tales first came out to these these huge multimedia shows with aerial performers and snake dancers and burlesque and belly dancing and and music and reading um and really they're kind of improvised shows whatever city we're in we put out the call through the blog for performers to come and so the show is always different no matter how many we've done in a row each one is completely different depending on where we are and, and who has come to play with us. Yeah, so wait, aerial performers, uh, how'd, that, how'd that come into play? So Lee Harrington is a really good friend of mine, and he's a, a, an artist of, of many stripes, but one of the things he does is aerial rope art. So basically he had people suspended from the ceiling um, with words written on them, and it's kind of an aerial dance rope performance. Uh, and so you're also a poet. Uh, have you written any poetry lately? Um, I've kind of taken a break from poetry. I do have a big poetry project coming up, but I can't really talk about it too much yet. 
I've, I wrote five collections of poetry in something like four years. And that was a lot. It was a lot of work. And uh, I mean, a lot of work in a good way. Like it, it was a lot of what I had been working on for years and years. I started out as a poet uh, and had been publishing in poetry long before I even tried a novel. So I, I, it's not that I don't still love poetry, that I don't still read poetry, and I'm sure I will write it again. But the novels have taken up such a huge part of my life and time uh, that I, I've sort of put that on the back burner for now. Uh, so are there a few contemporary poets you could name who deserve greater recognition? Oh, Diane Bukowski is my favorite living poet. Um, I absolutely adore her. And she's she's hardly known in the speculative poetry world because she's considered a mainstream poet, except for how she writes about physics and Medea all the time. So I, I really think that she should have a wider audience um, in our community. Uh, Medea the Sorceress is my favorite book of her poetry. I really highly recommend it to everyone. Of course, there's the whole Goblin Fruit gang, um, mm-hmm. Amal Mutar, Claire Cooney, uh, Nicole Corner Stace, Jessica Wick, that whole crowd. They're all, they're all amazing, but they're all pretty well known in the speculative poetry community. Um, Diane Wachowski is definitely the, the old school poet I would bring back into the limelight if I could. Uh, so apparently you once roasted an entire goat on a spit and read the Iliad. Uh, what was that all about? <laughs> I did. Well, I didn't personally roast the goat. Um, uh, wow. Okay. So way back a million years ago when I was 18, I think, I was in community college and I had this class where all year long, all we did was read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like that was it. That was the whole class. And it was amazing. It was a a wonderful class taught by a woman named Catherine Holvine, who's a brilliant scholar and poet in her own right. And we all we all loved it so much, just the way that she taught it. And, and, you know, I'd read the Odyssey in high school, but I'd I'd never read it the way she taught it. So we got together with the Sacramento Homeric Salon, of which there is such a thing, and the Sacramento Poetry Center. And we had an all night reading of the Iliad out in the middle of nowhere in this farm. And we had someone, it actually wasn't a goat, it was a lamb. We had this company come in and, and roast a, a lamb for us. It was a rest, local restaurant. And we all brought food and wine. There were about 100 people there. And we read the whole thing all night long. We each had passages that we were assigned and we would uh, cycle through. And then the first 15 lines of each book were read in ancient Greek, which is the first time I'd ever heard ancient Greek or dactylic hexameter, the, the meter that the Iliad and the Odyssey are written in, spoken aloud. And that changed my whole course. And I, I changed my major to classics and I learned ancient Greek. And the next year I read the, the Greek when we did the Odyssey. Uh, so, so in your interview on the Bat Segundo show, you mentioned that you'd studied medieval color theory. Uh, what is that and how has it influenced your work? If I hadn't been a total failure at drawing and painting, I probably would have been a painter instead of a writer, but I'm really, really bad at it. I love color. And in medieval art, everything is a code. Nothing is used by accident, and there is a very small portion of the critical apparatus of medieval studies that talks about color theory and what all those colors mean when they're used in, in medieval poetry. You know, why, why is the green knight green? Why are his eyes red? That sort of thing. And it's sort of, it, I love code and, and secret systems and all of that sort of thing. And as with any literary criticism, how much any individual artist knew about the sort of high-end understa- religious understanding uh, of, of illuminated manuscripts and what the colors meant is up, up for debate. But any of my books is highly reliant on color. There are always dominant color schemes in the books. And it, it's definitely a code that I use in my own work. Not necessarily the same meanings that the medieval colors supposedly had, but certainly I, I am full of codes. Wait, so why is the green knight green? 
Uh, well, so the Green Knight, um, for, for people who don't know what the actual story of Gowan and the Green Knight is, the Green Knight is just a guy. He looks like that because Morgan Le Fay, spoilers, Morgan Le Fay made him look like that to terrify Guinevere to death, which doesn't really work. It seems to really terrify the knights a lot more than it terrifies Guinevere. They're like throwing up into their helmets and stuff. But it's a, it, it obviously is a, a nature thing. You know, the Green Knight is sort of the green man, but he, he is overweening nature and he's violent nature. He has red eyes, you know, at like a possum's eyes, like a nocturnal animal's eyes. So it's supposed to be this natural image that is essentially wrong because Morgan Le Fay is, is essentially wrong. Uh, as much as we all love Morgan Le Fay these days and think that she is this fantastic feminist icon, she was actually a witch and is, is a very, very bad character in, in Gown and the Green Knight, but kind of a casual one when it's all over and it's revealed that she's been behind all of it. She literally asks Gowan to lunch. She's like, come on, we'll have lunch. It's all fine. And Gowan's like, I don't really feel like it. This has all been really horrible for me. And uh, she's like, well, screw you then. I mean, that's literally the end of Gowan and the Green Knight. The, the social mores are a little different. Okay, so we had a question from the audience. Uh, one of our listeners asks for your advice on writing sex scenes. Uh, what are some things to watch out for? How explicit should you be? What's the best point of view to use, etc.? So I actually wrote an entire essay about this, which is on my website. Sex scenes are terrifying to write. I really do find them terrifying. And the first time I read from Palimpsest, I realized just how much more horrifying it is and mortifying it is to read them out loud. Oh, it's, it's terrible. It's just like, my kinks, let me show you them. So I, I think with sex scenes, uh, how explicit should you be? I find most words for genitalia to be completely ridiculous. And not only are they not hot, but they're hilarious and kick you out of the scene immediately. So I, I sort of do jumping jacks to avoid actually referring to anything by its slang name at all. Proper names are, are just completely right out. I think that the sex scenes cannot just be for titillation. I mean, they, if you're writing, you know, erotica or romance, they certainly can be. But if you're aiming for a more literary thing, I think they have to pull double duty. They have to reveal something about the character. It's pretty hard to make a sex scene move the plot forward. Obviously, sex is a big part of the plot in Palimpsest, so it actually does move the plot forward every time someone has sex. But uh, they, it has to do something else in the book besides have two people... Uh, engage in sexual activity in order for it to not come across as gratuitous. So uh, my advice is to write it as carefully and as well as you would write any other scene. Don't fall back on cliches. I mean, I think that in, in novel novel length works, we have a lot of problems with cliches because you can hide them in, in just the sheer bulk of words that are there. And when it comes to sex, we all fall back on cliches because it, it is this sort of universal experience, or at least assumed to be a universal experience. But um, really, no two people have sex the same way. And we really need to aim for a more... I don't want to say more more unique approach, but be awesome with it. Don't just you know mush two people's bodies together and have the have the scene. <laughs> I almost said vibrate on multiple <laughs> levels, but resonate, resonate. That's what I mean on multiple levels. Uh, so you mentioned that you're also now editing uh, Apex Magazine. Uh, how'd you end up with that gig? They asked me, and I thought that it would be um, a good way to give something back to the community and be able to give some awesome writers who have not really gotten too much of their work out there a leg up, but also to learn a little bit about the editing side of it, because I, I had never done any editing at all before. I knew nothing about it. I thought of editors as, as people who saying yes or no to me could ruin my day or make my day. 
And I, I have learned a lot. I thought it would be a good learning experience, and, and it is. It's certainly very interesting to read Slush. I've never read Slush before, and it, it's it's certainly an eye-opener. The closest I ever came to Slush before this was reading the Amazon First Novels contest, which is actually so much worse than anything I've ever read for Apex, because there's just no, there's no gatekeepers at all with the first novel, so you just get 10 novels off the top of them, and you have to read the whole novel. It's not even just a short story. And that, that was a pretty harrowing trial by fire. Apex is a lot more pleasant than that. So you're, you're actually doing a special issue of the magazine to showcase writers of Arab descent and Muslim writers. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, I think it's going to be really awesome. I've gotten a lot more submissions than I expected. I, I expected um, to have a lot more trouble getting people to send things in, but I've gotten a lot of submissions. I'm still working through them. And it's just a way to highlight that Islamic culture and Arab culture is a part of the speculative community and has always been. It's not some kind of alien other that is non-understandable to Western readers, and I wanted to be able to put a spotlight on that. Um, so you, you recently published two stories, um, How to Become a Mars Overlord in Lightspeed and uh, The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew in Clark's World. That harkened back to pulp era science fiction. Um, can you tell us a bit about those stories and why you chose to make uh, use of the pulp era conventions? Okay, so the reason that the, the Radiant Car that Sparrows drew uh, goes back to pulp conventions is because my husband came running up to me one day and he said, Kat, Kat, can you write me a story where Venus is a water world like it used to be in the Zelazny books? And I said, sure, why not? Um, and so literally it was to satisfy the vending machine poking of my husband, which he occasionally does when he wants a story. But I, I always have been disappointed that the solar system is not the way I thought it was when I was in elementary school, where, again, every planet had its color, right, uh, and, and was set up with all these beautiful, vibrant sort of symbologies. And obviously, you know, Venus was a water world with giant fish on, them, on it. And I wish the world were really like that. I want everything to have been true. This is sort of the through line to a lot of my work. I want every story ever told to have been true. So I suppose How to Become a Mars Overlord, which is sort of about that pulpy Mars, and Radiant Car, which is about Venus, both are, are my love letters to a, a universe that can never be and never was. Whether that makes it science fiction or fantasy is something that has been much discussed. But I do love that world. I do love that impossibly beautiful, impossibly rich and hospitable and, and life-supporting universe that we once thought existed out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, some some readers have been complaining that uh, that the stories aren't actually real science fiction, quote unquote. Um, like, so, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, what do, what do you think about you know readers sort of telling you what what your stories are? I'm of two minds, and they are equal. One is I feel really bad. I feel like I failed them. I feel like next time I will do better. I will do something so hard science fiction that you will not be able to say this isn't science fiction. That will probably never happen. I don't think there's anything I could ever write that would not be questioned. But the other side of it is, I guess I don't have any idea what science fiction means then. If it has to mean science fact in order to be counted as science fiction, then I don't know anything about what this literary movement is. Because if having worlds that don't currently exist according to our understanding makes it not science fiction, then you have to cut out like 70% of everything that was counted as science fiction before now. What about that? those pulpy worlds that I'm calling back to? Those are all counted as science fiction without a problem. Nobody tries to put them in a different section these days. You know, nobody puts Zelazny's stories in... I don't, I don't even know what, what else you would put them in. 
But there's a lot of movement to sort of shrink science fiction down to something that conforms with what we understand of science right now. And if all science fiction is, is stories that utilize science as we understand it right now, and our current understanding is infallible and can never be anything but infallible, then I guess I'm not science fiction. And I guess I don't get to play those reindeer games. But that's not my understanding of science fiction. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, I mean, who are some of your favorite authors who write about aliens and robots and spaceships and that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I read Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and Bradbury and Zelazny, just like everybody else. I, I actually went through a period of being just so completely obsessed with Asimov, which actually I don't think I've ever talked about in interviews before. My mom uh, is actually still stuck with all of my old Asimov paperbacks, uh, which is, is, is quite the legacy to leave behind in California at my mom's house. See, the thing is, I feel like a lot of science fiction right now is pastiche science fiction, which I am totally guilty of as well. Because I, w- I was just going to say that I loved Theodore Goss's story in Interfictions 2, um, which is called The Child Empress of Mars. But that is a Burroughs pastiche, just as, you know, Radiant Car is in some sense a Zelazny pastiche. So I-, I think that there's a lot of conversation between current authors and those classic aliens and other planets science fiction authors going on right now. Your next book is The Habitation of the Blessed, which is based on the legend of Prester John. Um, For our listeners not familiar with that legend, could you just tell us a little bit about it? So in 1165, a letter showed up in Constantinople, and it was kind of like the YouTube video of the ancient world. Everyone passed it around and said, you've got to see this thing. And it described this fantastical kingdom in the East. It was very vague about what the East was. You You can't see my air quotes over Skype, but I'm making air quotes around the East. Um, India Ultima, which was sort of medieval for very, very far away. And uh, the author of the letter, who in, the letter is in first person, says, Hi, my name is Prester John, and I have all the most amazing things that have ever existed in any folklore and mythology in the history of the world. I have griffins and the fountain of youth and impossible riches, and even my butler is a pope, and everything here is totally awesome, specifically because I am a priest and also a king. Prester means presbyter, which is the same thing as priest. And medieval Europe really fixated on this because, as as you know, Bob, uh, priests aren't allowed to be kings in medieval Europe. But they thought that was a really justifica- good justification for them becoming kings. Frederick Barbarossa disagreed. And so did pretty much uh, all the secular rulers. But there was this conversation about what the role of priests and kings were. And could we all have griffins and the fountain of youth if we let our priests be kings? Which sounds ridiculous, but, you know, you have to figure these po- things out at some point. And this is kind of when the medieval world figured that out. And the people kept looking for this place for hundreds of years and died looking for it. When the Portuguese invaded Ethiopia, they demanded to be taken to Prester John. And the Ethiopians had no idea what they were talking about. And they said, well, we're just going to call the Ethiopian king Prester John anyway, if that's okay. And so they did for <laughs> like the next 50 years. They just referred to the Ethiopian king as Prester John because it would look awesome back home if they had found Prester John. And during the Crusades, people really thought Prester John was going to come and save them was this huge part of the medieval mindset. And again, I want everything ever to have been true. So that's sort of what this series is. It's uh, taking everything in the letter and the history of it as a a fact and looking at uh, what life would have been like in that kingdom and and recognizing that if this is a kingdom full of magical creatures and, and giants and winged men and all of that sort of thing, Prester John, as the human, has got to be the outsider, as a Christian human, has got to be the outsider, someone who came from elsewhere. And so I remember a really long time ago, the first time I was ever interviewed by Locus, I was talking to Gary Wolf about this, and he said, oh, it's a first contact story. Hmm. And I thought that that was a, a, a really wonderful idea about this book. 
Um, so what kind of challenges are there uh, taking a legend like this and trying to turn it into a novel, like turning it into a contemporary narrative? Well, first of all, nobody has any idea who Prester John is. <laughs> so I have I tell this story a lot. And so I have to not only construct the narrative as I want the narrative to be, but also teach the reader all of the things they need to know to read the book at the same time. Really, the way that's, that was done in, in Habitation of the Blessed is that there is a frame narrative uh, from the point of view of, of a bunch of Prester John-obsessed monks who are looking for uh, the kingdom. So their sort of delving into the legends allows the reader to understand a little bit more about the pre-existing conditions of, of this world. Also, I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of research. Uh, historical fiction always is, and you can't really go a paragraph without checking your facts and looking things up and what, what was and was not available to any characters in, in that um, universe. The classic example is always new world food uh, and old world food. You know, there are plenty of things that people literally couldn't eat in the old world. But, uh, I, I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge is always to have uh, non-human points of view be sympathetic and, you know, to treat the other as the usual, uh, which is kind of where I'm always coming from. I'm always more interested in the monsters than I am in the men. I mean, I'll, I'll be very interested to see what people who are medievalists and, and that whole community thinks of the book, because in some ways it very much goes against the traditional sort of heroic image of Prester John. Uh, so is there anything else new or upcoming that you'd like to mention? I have a short story collection coming out in December called Ventriloquism, which I'm, I just saw the cover for today, and it's amazing. Uh, I have a novel called Deathless coming out on March 29th. Deathless is um, a retelling of the folktale of Koshe the Deathless and Maria Morevna, uh, which is an obscure, well, it's not really obscure, but it's it's a little different than most Russian fairy tales. And at one point in the very long story that, that is this folktale, uh, it's revealed that Maria Morevna, who is a, a warrior princess, but not Xena, has Koshe the Deathless, who is the devil of Russian folklore, chained up in her basement. And the first time I heard this story, I was like, whoa, 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 hmm. stop. Why does she have him chained up in her basement? How did that happen? How could that possibly happen? How have everyone in Russian fairy tales does this woman end up with the devil chained up in her basement. And that was how this uh, this book started. And the other half of it is really that five years ago, I fell in love with a Russian man and we got married last year. And in between all of that time, I've been hanging out with his family a whole lot. And they came over when he was about 11. And so they all have a million stories to tell. And I've, I've been sort of steeped in uh, stories of the old country and uh, of World War II in Russia. And so it deals with the siege of Leningrad, which is really pretty much one of the worst things that's ever happened in the history of the world, and the revolution and uh, the sort of Stalinist regime in Russia. And then Fairyland's coming out uh, May 10th. It, it is the actual book of The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland coming out May 10th. It's hardback and fully illustrated and is totally gorgeous. Uh, I've seen all of the art in the cover, and it's just amazing. So it's, it's the grand print version of it. It's a big year coming up for me. Uh, so, uh, Catherine M. Valenti, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Kat for joining us on the show. Uh, sharing with us about her wild goat roasting days <laughs> that made her change her major to classics. It's amazing, isn't it, John? How one night with a goat can just change your whole life. Yeah, that happened. The same thing happened to me, actually. I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you about that, but um, I don't really like to talk about it. So that's a whole nother podcast. Yes, the Geek's Guide to Goats. <laughs> well, fortunately, it still would be GGG. We don't have to change the logo that much. <laughs> That's that's the important thing. 
Yeah. Um, but no, so when, uh, when she was telling that story and talking about reading the Iliad, it was uh, reminding me of this story. Um, in a previous episode, I had recommended strongly Mike Duncan's excellent History of Rome podcast. Uh, and he was, there was a story I heard on there where he was talking about the death of the emperor Nero and, you know, um, Nero had become very unpopular. He, he didn't really want to be emperor so much. He wanted to be an actor. And so he just used his position of authority to force people to come and watch him act. You know, today, like movie stars are, are the biggest celebrities and heroes in our society, but in Rome, actors were just like one step above prostitutes and so it would just scandalized the aristocracy that the emperor was acting on the stage and so anyway so so eventually you know he uh, became really unpopular and had to flee the city and he went down to the docks to to get on his boat to sail away and the guards there they could kind of see which way the wind was blowing and they didn't want to let him board the boat because they didn't want to be blamed later for having let him escape and so they wouldn't let him on and he kind of pleaded with them and they quoted to him from the iliad the line that goes is it really such a bad thing to die? And uh, I just really like that. I, I, I like the idea of a society where, where this poem is known by everyone, and even the guards down at the docks, you know, can quote it to you off the top of their heads. Mm-hmm. And so eventually Nero, you know, he, uh, he fled out into the countryside and was surrounded by all of his enemies and had no choice but to fall upon his sword. And his last words were, ah, what an artist the world is losing. Well, Dave, you know, I'm sh- I'm sure someday people are going to be quoting Cats and Victory lines, you know, in, in situations like that, you know, something related to curiosity or something. Uh, people are going to be quoting you, so. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> hey, but, you know, now that you mentioned uh, ancient Rome and all that, like, I got to mention Spartacus. Can I talk about Spartacus? I know you haven't seen it yet, but the show's totally I think awesome. I think I know how it ends. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, so, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if if our listeners have checked out the show yet. I mean, it just came out on DVD, um, you know, it aired on Stars. but I was really pretty skeptical about it. And uh, I've heard a lot of mixed things. Like, for instance, I mean, it's a 13 episode season and you kind of have to give it like four or five episodes before it starts to get really good, which is not really entirely fair, but it's wholly worth it. I mean, really. And that's the only reason I stuck with it is because so many people said it was so worth it. And it really is. I mean, it, it like it becomes a really, really good show. And I mean, it's like. Um, I mean, it's gloriously violent. So, I mean, if that's an issue for you, you you know, you're not going to like it. But it's really a lot of fun. And, um, I mean, I think the characters just sort of really, really grow on you. And they, um, like, it, it's kind of hard to imagine that you're watching something on television sometimes. I mean, the just because it's, like, so violent and so um, over the top with the, like, sexuality and stuff. I mean, there's, like, I mean, because it's ancient Rome, so it's, like, you know, very, uh, they're very free uh, with their sex and all that. And um i mean that's not but I mean, that's all on the periphery i mean the, the the best part of the show is just the characters and 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 the glorious violence but uh it's a lot of fun um and i highly recommend it i mean and the uh the season finale is like so amazing um it's just like i mean i actually watched it twice and i mean i very rarely do anything like that and i, I even watched some of the extras on the dvd but yeah like i watched the first episode and i was not at all impressed but but as you you keep saying you know it gets better so I, i'll i'll have to check it out at some point yeah, actually, after I watched the first episode, I, I posted on Twitter. I was like, so um, after watching this first episode of Spartacus, I'm assuming that the human body contains <laughs> approximately 29 gallons of blood. Is that right? Or I mean, I, I didn't look it up, but I mean, that's the impression I get from watching this episode. Just because like, I mean, there was like so over the top with uh, like just blood like pouring out of these gladiators and stuff. So yeah, it was, just, it was a little a little ridiculous um, at first, but you know, it, it gets better. Well, didn't Toby post a thing like after you watch the season finale, you'll realize it's actually more like a hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's true. I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I don't think it, it doesn't it doesn't seem as ridiculous by that point, I think, because I've, I've sort of been uh, beaten down into uh, understanding the quantity of blood that these people contain in this ancient <laughs> era. Um, you know, it's a well-known fact that over the years we've, uh, <laughs> you know, we've evolved to not have that much blood in our bodies anymore. So um, they're just being historically accurate. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of reading the, the Iliad, um, you know, when, when Kat was talking about, like, spending all night reading it, uh, I've never done anything like that. When I was in college, uh, a professor once talked about how they used to stay up all night and read Paradise Lost. And that always really captivated me. I'd always, I'd really like to do something like that, but I, I never get invited to those sorts of parties. I guess yeah. I'm not not cool enough or something. Um, but I was thinking, you know, we should uh, we should do that sometime. We should stay up all night and, and roast a goat or whatever, and you know, have a reading of Stars My Destination or or something. Yeah, that would be awesome. There there, there probably will be something more appropriate than a goat, though, if we're going to read the Stars My Destination. You know, like maybe maybe it should just be a, a person. It's <laughs> like you know those 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 uh, uh, I forget what the name what the name of them are, but you know the people that uh, that capture Gully Foil and they tattoo Nomad on his forehead and all that. You know those you know sort of barbaric people. You know that that sort of seems like something they would do. Yeah, we'll have to get a just the right caterer <laughs> for that one. Yeah, but no, you know I was thinking that. The first time I ever heard of Catherine Valenti, I think you mentioned her to me because of this anthology, 20 by 20s, that, that you were editing or, you know, trying to put together um, along with Doug Cohen, who's now the editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine. He was, you know, an assistant there at the time. And, you know, you were sort of putting together the 20 most promising writers in their 20s. And I remember she was one, you know, I was supposed to be in the anthology. Um, that was a while ago. Uh, what, whatever happened to that project? Uh, well, you know, we uh, we shopped it around, and it, it actually came close to selling in a few places, but ultimately nobody bit. And um, you know, actually, I mean, if you look, if I look back at it now, it's like you know, some of the authors got even sort of bigger than you know I would have expected. I mean, like Brandon Sanderson was in that group, um, and you know, he obviously he's become a huge success now. And, and I mean, and Kat Valenti too. I mean, you know, she's not quite the as big a bestseller as, as Brandon Sanderson, but I mean, you know, she's become a, a major major figure in the genre. And uh, and you know Tobias Bakel and and you know um, Scott Lynch. I mean a lot of the, a lot of the authors we had in there. Um, if you look at if you look at that same table of contents now, you know well they're not in their twenties anymore. But you know the table of contents would look pretty good to a publisher right now, just based on who these authors like you know who these authors have become. You know mm. in the meantime. But but you know I was you know it was funny because I I was I think like twenty five or twenty six when when you guys were first batting the idea around, and then I got to be kind of. 27 and 28 and 28 and a half and yeah. you know like a year and a half that's like the blink of an eye in terms of how fast publishing moves so i started getting a little nervous you know that i was not going to be in my 20s anymore and and you guys were like oh no don't worry you know as long as we <laughs> as long as you were in your 20s when we selected you you know you're good we've, we we already have a couple people who've aged you know who've hit mm -hmm. 30 already yeah I mean, well the same thing happened to me because i was i'm a little bit older than doug and so I was also in my 20s when we were putting this together. And, and we thought that was just kind of a bonus that, you know, oh, the editors are also in their 20s. But, you know, at least one publisher, you know, seemed to think that was a problem. And so we were sort of disqualified or I was disqualified, uh, you know, because I I had like already turned 30. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because they didn't make an offer on the book anyway in the end. But it was a stumbling block. So, yeah, I mean, damn ages. Well, you know, it's like publishing moves so slow. You know, if uh, we could have gotten answers from people quicker, you know, we could have actually shot that thing around pretty well. But, you know, just, it didn't work out, you know, too bad. I mean, it would have been a good book, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is sort of like disconcerting how fast you age compared to how slow publishing moves. Even just sending out short <laughs> short stories, you know. I mean, you know, it, you know, it's it's pretty typical for a magazine, say, to take three months to get back to you, and so mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of four chances a year to submit that story, and you know, often the magazines you're submitting to have hundreds of, uh, you know, it's your odds are one in three hundred or four hundred or something, and <laughs> so when you only get four chances a year, you know, your age. Mm-hmm increments pretty quickly well that's why there's so few young promising writers in the field just because you know they uh you know most of them it's like you know they they're they're already old by the time you've uh, discovered that they're a new promising writer you know because it's taken so long for publishing to sort of get their stories out there and whatnot mm-hmm. and i was thinking about this today I was, I was sort of wondering like how many you know young writers do we lose like just like really great talented writers just do we never hear from because they just don't have the combination of sort of arrogance slash masochism <laughs> slash time just to mm-hmm. to endure, you know, say five or six years or more of constant frustration? Well, I mean, I think that might change a bit um, with the sort of because because publishing is sort of changing. I mean, uh, at least with short fiction. I mean, now we have we have a lot of online markets that accept electronic submissions, and they have fast turnaround times, like Lightspeed. I mean, we we turn around stuff usually within a couple of days. So, um, you know, either buying it or rejecting it. I mean, I mean, so like I was going to say that if there are any young writers listening to this, uh, you know, if, if like you're in your teens or if you're in college, you should definitely be submitting to contests and things because there are all sorts of opportunities. You know, there are all sorts of awards and, and contests and, and publications and things that you're eligible for that you'll lose your eligibility for very quickly. And there's really no sort of stepping stone between those, that stuff and just the wider publishing world. You know, it's kind of like you've been in the kiddie pool and you just have to go straight to swimming with sharks, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, so two things that really come to mind are the sc- for, for high school students are the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. And they have those in all sorts of different categories. Um, and, and there's a, a science fiction category. And then also the Dell Magazines Award, um, which is sponsored by Asimov's and Analog Magazines. And that's for undergraduates. And, and that's a really great opportunity if you win. They fly you to Florida for the uh, International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, and you get to meet all sorts of writers and editors and hang out by the pool. It's a, a good time. And you won that. And I won that, yep. And the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, too. Oh, you won both. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but so I was just going to say that um, I actually have a section of my website called Resources for Teen Writers where it lists all the contests and awards and things. Um, so check that out. Actually, if you just search for teen writers uh, online, it's just one of the first few things that comes up. All right, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, An Artificial Night by Shauna McGuire. Changeling night in the court of the Duke of Shadowed Hills, October Toby Day has survived numerous challenges that would destroy Fae and mortal alike. Now Toby must take on a nightmarish new assignment. Someone is stealing both Fae and mortal children, and all signs point to blind Michael. When the young son of Toby's closest friends is snatched from their Northern California home and his sister falls into a coma-like state, the situation becomes way too personal. Toby has no choice but to track the villains down, even when there are only three magical roads by which to reach blind Michael's realm, home of the legendary Wild Hunt, and no road may be taken more than once. If she cannot escape with all the children before the candle that guides and protects her burns away, Toby herself will fall prey to the wild hunt and blind Michael's inescapable power. 
and it doesn't bode well for the success of her mission that her own personal fetch, Mayday, the harbinger of Toby's own death, has suddenly turned up on her doorstep. An unabridged recording of An Artificial Night by Shauna McGuire, narrated by Mary Robinette Kowal. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. All right, so, um, you know, Kat was talking about how her stories, How to Be a Mars Overlord and The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew, are sort of, were sort of um, inspired by these, these old pulp magazine uh, images of, of Mars and Venus. I guess the idea sort of is, you know, that before people really knew anything about Mars and Venus, they kind of imagined, you know, that Venus is closer to the sun and Mars is further out from the sun. And so Venus must be a more kind of like Earth's past, a more primordial world of jungles and oceans and clouds and dinosaurs and prehistoric animals like that. And that Mars would be sort of like a future, a sort of dying, decadent, barren future. And that was sort of the consensus imagination view of those two planets. This stuff is a little before my time. I just sort of caught the echoes of it when I was a kid. Stuff like Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles and Robert Heinlein's Red Planet are, are those kinds of treatments of, of the Mars with the canals and, and the ancient Martian civilizations and things. So, but sort of, the, um, sort of the classic example of this pulp era Mars is what Kat mentioned, uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs. You know, Edgar Rice Burroughs is best known as the creator of Tarzan. But in science fiction, he's best known for his uh, Princess of Mars novel and its sequels. So actually, there's a feature film in development, and uh, it's, it, it's not coming out until 2012, but uh, it's got Andrew Stanton is directing it. He's uh, from Pixar. He uh, also directed Finding Nemo and Wall-E, and it's been reported that Michael Chabon was hired to do rewrites on the script. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they uh, adapt it and sort of update it because, you know, the books are, the first one was published in like 1912. And uh, so, you know, they sort of, they bear their age as a lot of books written that long ago do. So it'll just be interesting to see how they update everything and, and make it more a contemporary story. I mean, because I think those are great stories. You know, they're really, you know, full of adventure and, and, and sort of sense of wonder. So it'll be nice to see those sort of updated for a new generation and, and to just get a whole new generation of people to to even know what the, those books are. I mean, because uh, actually I, I, I thought that everybody knew, like everybody who reads science fiction, I thought they knew Princess of Mars and they knew John Carter of Mars and or, or the, the term Barsoom, which is what the, the Martians call the, the planet Mars in, in the series. But uh, I was surprised. I mean, there was a lot of people I, I talked to about it, and they just they didn't know they weren't familiar with it. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll you know expose it to a lot of new readers. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll see a lot more uh, probably writers like Kev Lenty um, being inspired to uh, try their hand at uh, reinventing the, those sort of pulp conventions. But actually, uh, you know, speaking of this Mars stuff, I mean, that's just that reminded me. I, I actually wrote an article about Mars science fiction um, in the Internet Review of Science Fiction. It's just irosf.com recommending the, the essential quote-unquote novels and, and short stories and whatnot. But I actually, I divided it into two categories. So I have, you know, Mars in the post-Mariner age, you know, Mariner being the spacecraft that uh, mapped Mars um, in the, the 70s. It's divided into Mars in the post-Mariner age and, and then Mars in the pre-Mariner age. And the pre-Mariner Mars is all stories in which, like Dave was just talking about, where, you know, we thought there were canals on Mars and it was like this sort of dead or dying planet or whatever, and um, so the idea of, like, you know, Barsoom taking place on Mars is ridiculous uh, as far as uh, our current understanding of science goes. But 
I mean, I think everybody probably knew that, you know, a Princess of Mars was not possible. I mean, just the stuff that happens with the aliens on there and everything. I mean, they probably figured that wasn't possible. But uh, Mars fiction sort of took a really hard turn towards scientific plausibility in, in you know, post-Mariner. And uh, so it's interesting to sort of study the, the difference between the two types of Mars fiction and, and how they uh, really, in, in a lot of ways, they, they don't bear any resemblance to each other at all. You know, people have been trying to film Princess of Mars since 1931, and uh, one of the more recent ones was um, John Favreau was gonna was gonna do it. You know, he he wrote and directed Swingers, and and he recently did the Iron Man movies. You know, in, in the in the novel, I guess John Carter is an American Civil War soldier, and he goes to sleep in a cave after being chased by Apache Indians and wakes up on Mars. And so, uh, you know, John Favreau wanted to keep him as a Confederate soldier. And he also wanted to have the Martian, I guess they're the Martian Tharks are 15 feet tall. And uh, other, you know, most other scripts have just made them human sized just for, um, you know, practical logistical purposes. He, he said, you know, that John Carter has to be a, a Civil War soldier because what makes him such a formidable fighter when he gets to Mars is that he knows how to fight with a sword and ride a horse and stuff. And, you know, a modern soldier wouldn't presumably know how to, you know, ride a horse or fight with a sword. But actually, you know, the first attempt to film it was uh, a guy from Looney Tunes wanted to do it using animation. And, uh, and apparently Burroughs thought that that was a great idea because, you know, with animation, you could actually do all the wild special effects and things that at the time would just be completely out of the question to do live action. So this guy did some test footage showing the, uh, you know, the four-armed Martians and the eight-legged thoats galloping, you know, showing all eight legs in coordinated motion. Um, and apparently they, this is all according to Wikipedia, apparently they um, exhibited this around the country to see what people's reactions are. And it says, uh, the test footage produced by 1936 received negative reactions from exhibitors across the U.S., especially in small towns, many of whom opined that the concept of an Earthman on Mars was too outlandish for Midwest American audiences, so that it never, uh, never got made. And it says, you know, had A Princess of Mars been released, it may have beaten Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to become the first American feature-length animated film. Oh, well, actually, I was going to say, and uh, actually recently there was a, a, another adaptation of Princess of Mars. If, uh, if you go to Netflix and you, and you go into the streaming section, there's a, you know, one from a couple of years ago that looks really, really awful. And uh, all accounts, uh, like I have, I've, I've, I have friends that have seen it and they, and they say it and they confirm that it's awful. But if you, if you want to see a really terrible version of it, I guess you can check that one out. I, I've refrained from seeing it myself, but I think Tracy Lords is in it. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't look like a winner. Um, I mean, maybe that was a case where, I mean, we've talked about in the show before where they have these companies that produce movies that are like just obvious ripoffs of blockbusters. And so in like the titles, like slightly different and they make the packaging look exactly the same. And like, didn't you even get tricked into watching one by accident once? No, um, almost. I almost downloaded one. Oh, almost. Okay. Almost. Um, but so, so, uh, maybe this was a case where they, they saw the, the John Favreau version was on track or whatever, and, and they, so they jumped the gun, and it's just that like, it never came out. And so, you know, it's way ahead of the, the Pixar version, which is, uh, looks to actually be coming out in, in 2012. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, before I, when I was talking about, you know, Mars in the post and pre Mariner age, uh, one interesting thing that I came across when I was doing that research is that there's like this one story that kind of uh, serves as a, as a bridge between the two. Um, there's a story called The First Mars Mission by Robert F. Young, uh, appeared in uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1979. It tells the story of a group of young boys who built a spaceship in their backyard, and um, in this spaceship they take a fanciful trip to Mars. It starts off with them having this uh, this trip to the pre-Mariner Mars, but then at the end of the story, like the astronaut actually goes to Mars, and 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 um, and the Mars that he goes to is 
is like the accurate sort of post-Mariner uh, idea of Mars. And, and so I thought that was interesting how it sort of bridges the two types of Mars fiction. So, um, you know, Kat was mentioning Roger Zelazny, you know, who's, who's relevant to this, particularly for two of his early stories. You know, sort of like Kat has her, you know, pulp Mars and Venus story. Uh, Zelazny did too. His, you know, his, his Mars story is called A Rose for Ecclesiastes, and his Venus story is called The Doors of His Face, The Lamps of His Mouth. And, uh, and they're both really cool stories. And if you want to read Roger Zelazny's short fiction, there's never been a better time because uh, Nesva Press has just released his collected short fiction in six volumes. And they're all hardcover and gorgeous cover illustration by Michael Whalen and lots of essays and biographical information and uh, you know notes for each story, notes from the author about how he came up with the idea and you know, each story has an, an entry just explaining what all the illusions are. You know, Zelazny's writing is just chock full of illusions. And so it's just really fascinating and really, <laughs> just really amazing to see how many there are. So even from just, you know, the story arose for Ecclesiastes, you know, there's just pages of, of single-spaced text explaining what all the illusions are. So I'll, I'll just read like a, a, a short section here. It says, a madrigal is a musical form of secular text composed for two voices, often in Italian. Let not ambition mock thy useful toil, is a line from the poem The Cotter's Saturday Night by Robert Burns. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was a writer and aviator who published several prominent novels pertaining to flight and is best known for the novel The Little Prince. Malibolge is the eighth circle of hell in Dante's The Divine Comedy. Terzarima is a rhyming in triplets, specifically the style used in The Divine Comedy. The Mahabharata is a lengthy Sanskrit epic of ancient India. And so, I mean, it just goes on like that for pages. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's just, that's for one short story. And there's a thing like that for every story in all these volumes. So, I mean, just the breadth of knowledge Zelazny had is, is just really striking. One thing that was kind of interesting that I learned was that uh, one of Zelazny's techniques for coming up with ideas for stories was that he would look at the yellow pages and try to imagine what those businesses would be doing, you know, 100 years in the future or whatever. And so actually he was looking through the yellow pages and came across an ad for a bait and tackle shop. And that's where he got the idea for the story, The Doors of His Face, The Lamps of His Mouth, which is about a guy on Venus hunting a gigantic sea monster with this sort of floating oil platform with a gigantic fishing rod harpoon contraption. And it's just kind of cool that uh, such a famous story came from such a random uh, inspiration. So, uh, yeah, but speaking of the Zelazny collection, that just reminds me of the a similar type collection that uh, Hafner Press put out from Lee Brackett. I mean, it's not as comprehensive as the Zelazny, but uh, the collection is called Martian Quest, and uh, it sort of collects all of her Mars stories. And, uh, I mean, she was actually very prominent uh, among the writers who were um, writing these pre-Mariner Mars stories. You know, one of the better ones, too. I mean, and, and uh, she, I think she's sort of an un, um, unappreciated writer these days. I mean, I think only hardcore SF people tend to know who she is, um, except, you know, if you you pay attention to Star Wars credits, you may notice that she uh, co-wrote the screenplay for Empire Strikes Back. But I mean, other than that, I mean, she actually wrote a lot of awesome stuff too. And uh, she wrote stuff about Venus as well. So like, um, I mean, she has this character, Eric John Stark, and she wrote all these stories about him. And, uh, you know, he goes from Mars to Venus and all over. But uh, yeah, it's very, very, uh, very sort of similar in, in, in tone and um, sort of adventure to, uh, to Edgar Rice Burroughs. It says in this book that Zelazny really loved the pulp conceptions of Mars and Venus, 
but that around the time he was writing those stories, it was quickly becoming apparent that the ideas of these inhabited Mars and Venus with breathable air and so on, you know, were not possible. And he figured that he had to write his stories <laughs> quickly, that he was just getting them in under the wire, you know, before the advance of scientific knowledge foreclosed that imaginative space forever. But then it's kind of funny to see that, you know, here we are 40 years later, you know, and people are still writing stories set on, you know, like like cat stories and, and like the Theodora Goss story that she mentioned. Yeah, I mean, that just sort of reminds me of what Kat was saying, how she, you know, how she just hates that like, all this stuff is not true, you know, and it's just like, yeah, I mean, that it, it's great that we know that these things are not true, but we can still play with them in fiction and, and you know, sort of we have this sort of communal understanding of, of what Mars and Venus were like uh, before science uh, spoiled it for us. So it's kind of a, a nice shorthand to sort of dive into this stuff that sort of uh, deconstructs or, or riffs off those conventions. Uh, I think it's interesting that we don't have to discard that just because science tells us that it's not true. It's like we can just, you know, use it in a different way. Uh, so we're just about out of time. I was just going to end with a quote. Uh, so this is a quote from our guest, Catherine M. Valenti's story. The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew, uh, which uh, is on Clark's world. What is milk for, if not to nurture a new generation, a new world? We have never seen a cow whale calf, yet the mothers endlessly nurse. What do they nurture out there in their Red Sea? I will tell you. For the space is not smooth that darkly floats between our earth and that morning star, Lucifer's star, in eternal revolt against the order of heaven. It is thick, it is swollen. Its disrupted proteins skittering across the black-like foam, like milk spilled across the stars. And in this quantum milk, how many bubbles may form and break? How many abortive universes, gestated by the eternal sleeping mothers, may burgeon and burst? I suggest to this awful idea, Venus is an anchor, where all waveforms meet in a radiant scarlet sea, where the milk of creation is milled, and we have pillaged it, gorged upon it all unknowing. Perhaps in each bubble of milk is a world suckled at the breast of a pearlescent cetacean. Perhaps there is one where Venus is no watery Eden, as close as a sister, but a distant inferno of steam and stone, lifeless, blistered. Perhaps you have drunk the milk of this world. Perhaps I have, and destroyed it with my digestion. Perhaps a skin of probabilistic milk, dribbling from the mouths of babes, is all that separates our world from the others think about it all right well that was our episode uh be sure to check back in two weeks for our next episode and uh thanks for listening the geek's guide to the galaxy is a production of io9 and is brought to you by brilliance audio for this episode's show notes to subscribe to this podcast or for more information about the show visit io9.com slash tag slash geeks guide to learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.